May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. To begin, a couple of coffee shop observations. It's a place where, as many of you know, I spend a fair bit of time. It's my second office, these coffee places. The other day, at my local coffee place, Finale's, as the friendly young server completed my order, she smiled and exclaimed, Christmas is almost here. Now, committed as I am to observing the liturgical calendar, I'm not the kind of purist or Grinch who would feel a need to remind that young woman that the Christmas season doesn't actually begin until the sun sets on the 24th of December. And I sure wasn't about to give her a sermon on the significance of Advent. I've saved that for you. <laughs> and so, simply honoring her enthusiasm, I remarked on her obvious delight in the coming season. I love Christmas, she said. It's the best holiday of the whole year. And because the staff at this place know who I am and what I do, with just a hint of pride, she added, I even make my yearly appearance at my parents' church. <laughs> then early this past week, it was in a second cup where I'd arranged to meet someone for a conversation. My coffee there was served in a bright red paper cup emblazoned with the words peace and joy. And then in smaller print, there's a little love in every cup. Now, we might be an increasingly pluralistic and secularized society, but apparently most of us still like the idea of our cup of coffee coming with a little bit of love, peace, and joy, all for two and a quarter. They're good words, after all. They're our words. Yet I couldn't help but think that as a decoration on a coffee cup, they were rendered just a bit thin. No matter how many of those cups are printed, no matter how many decorations are hung in public spaces bearing those same words, and you see them all over, does anyone really take them to heart? I thought of the prophet Jeremiah's words. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In a verse from Longfellow's poem, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, where he writes, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, it really isn't my intention to come across as some doer, Scrooge-like preacher here. It's just that I want our words back. I'd even be happy to share them with the second cup, so long as we ourselves don't lose them. And the way to a robust reclaiming of words like peace and hope and love and joy is by way of an equally robust engagement with this season called Advent. Advent, you see, is one of the Church's great counter-practices. 
where my coffee cup promised me a little bit of love, peace, and joy, the watchwords for these opening weeks of Advent are a bit more challenging. You heard the readings. Awake. Be ready. Watch. And that has nothing to do with watching the flyers for the best Christmas sales, laying awake at night wondering if you found the perfect gift for your significant other, or making sure you've got all the details good and ready for the 25th. No, those words are directed to the horizon of all of time and all of history. You know what time it is, Paul writes in his epistle to the Romans, how it is now the moment for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now, he wrote, than when we first became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. But Paul, didn't you write those words something like 2,000 years ago? The day is near? Nearer to us now than when we first believed? Now I suppose the simplest way to answer that question and kind of to bring Paul's perspective into line with how we think would be to simply quote from Jesus. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then to add something like, God's time is not our time. And that's probably the best way to go. Some people, though, over the ages, have developed highly complicated systems of trying to determine the timelines of history and to demonstrate that it won't be long now, think of the worldview and the theology that informs the Left Behind series, for instance. Well, those kinds of predictive systems have been tried through the whole 2,000-year history of the Church. They were particularly common around the year 1,000, as the calendar clicked toward the end of millennium. And then they were again very popular during the Black Death or the Great Plague of the 14th century. And for various reasons, they surfaced again with renewed vigor in the 19th century, initially in England and then very powerfully in North America. These systems were trying to predict the end of the world and what it would look like, how it was going to play out. It's this 19th century version that put the most emphasis on some of the lines we heard read aloud from the Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus says, Two will be in a field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two will be grinding, one will be taken and one will be left. Well, that was picked up very powerfully in the 19th century and really developed into a, this concept of what's called the rapture, in which faithful believers were thought to be quite literally lifted from the place where they were and spared from a time of intense tribulation. If you've read the Left Behind series, you know that's kind of the premise. And some of you might even be old enough to remember a movie from 1972 called A Thief in the Night, which was often shown in church circles. 
sometimes with a view to scaring the hell out of us. Literally. Yet, the theologians and writers of the ancient church tended to see these words of Jesus as being simply a call to vigilant readiness. Not as a description of the mechanics of the world's end. In our own day, the great evangelical biblical scholar N.T. Wright has written that, quote, The warning was primarily directed to the situation of dire emergency in the first century, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and before his words about the destruction of the temple came true. And that the imagery of some being taken and some being left Quote, doesn't mean that one person will be taken away by God in some kind of supernatural salvation while the other is left to face destruction. If anything, Wright continues, it's the opposite. When invading forces sweep through a town or village, they will take some off to their deaths and leave others untouched. In other words, in Bishop Wright's measured opinion, Jesus was speaking very directly into the political and military crisis of his day with a picture of the soldiers coming and taking some off. But then he's very careful to add these words. This rings through subsequent centuries and into our own day. Tom Wright does very much believe that God is not yet finished with us that all of time and history will be brought to its culmination, and that Christ will return. On those counts, he's unwavering. And maybe it's on those counts that we have to stand most firm, and not worry about the kind of systems and mechanics and scary things like a thief in the... Was anybody else... Did anybody else have to watch that movie? Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, you see, that even with the dire warnings and that strong word about wake up, be ready, be alert, prepare, for all of that, Advent news is good news, which insists with St. Paul that all of creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. It's on its way somewhere. I think that the Lutheran biblical scholar Arland Hultgren is fundamentally right when he says, quote, The message of Christ's return is not meant to frighten us. It is to give us hope. And that's maybe my greatest objection to the approach taken in some of those movies, some of that literature, even in Larry Norman's song from the early mid-70s called I Wish We'd All Been Ready, in which Norman sang, There's no time to change your mind. How could you have been so blind? The Father spoke, the demons dined. The Son has come, and you've been left behind. To this... Arlen Hultgren's words are an important corrective, and I need you to hear this, to move from fear to hope. 
As he says, the Christ who is to come is the Christ who once lived among us on earth and who is known in the gospel story as the friend and healer of those in need. Moreover, living in hope, expecting Christ's return, is integral to the Christian faith. For by it we insist that there is more to the human story and God's own story than that which has been experienced already. This idea, this belief, this proclamation of Christ's return, he says, is integral to our faith. For by it we insist that there is more to the human story and to God's own story than that which has been experienced already. We insist, in other words, that God has not yet finished with us and our world. We insist that those words, love, joy, and peace, will find their deepest meaning in the fullness of time, in the world's final advent, in Christ's return. But still, we need to hear those great and challenging words of these opening days of this Advent season. Awake. Be ready. Watch. Live each day, live each moment, in ready anticipation and expectation, even in vigilance. And then we add one more good, strong word, an Advent word. Wait. For one hour at least each week here, hold off the pressure to be consumed by Christmas. Shopping, baking, planning, fretting, rushing. Hold off and embrace that posture of waiting. Breathe deeply of the air of this other season of deep expectation wakefulness, readiness, and ultimately exuberant hope that says Christ is not finished with us yet. Then, when December 24th does arrive, and it will arrive, mark it not merely as the best holiday of the whole year, but as a pivotal chapter. A pivotal chapter in a much longer and deeper story One still being written, in fact. One in which we all have a part. For now and again, the moment has come to wake from our sleep. And salvation is indeed nearer to us now than ever before. Live into that in this season. Amen.